Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 52, The Battle of Grunwald. The location of the battle this week is in the northeast of the modern country of Poland in the Warmian Masurian Voivodeship. The battle took place near a village called Grunwald, hence the name. It is possible that Baltic peoples occupied this area before the Romans travelled to the Baltic Sea. It does seem that Germanic tribes would have pushed eastwards from Central Europe and likely came into contact with the Baltic tribes in this area we can feel somewhat confident that Celtic and Scythian peoples would have either occupied or been in close contact with this area before the age of written history reached this area from northern Europe. While the earliest Celtic cultures such as the Hallstatt and the Latin cultures were dominating the middle of the European continent, the Lusatian culture was existing in modern Polish lands. Production of Bronze Age weaponry and evidence of horse use is apparent with a strongly agricultural society as one might expect. The deceased were likely to be cremated and Iron Age culture would have migrated to this area naturally from surrounding cultures, most notably the Celts from the south. It would be after the classical age that the Germanic tribes would have spread into the areas of Poland looking to expand their area of influence. The biggest problem when telling the story of this area is ascertaining how much influence the Germanic tribes had over this area and guessing which of the many groups of Germanic tribes were settled in this area. For example, the Jepids may have originated in Polish lands, but there are two issues with this. The Jepids were quite closely related to the Goths and the Vandals, so we don't know whether we are confusing these tribes with each other or how diverged or converged they were with each other. The other issue is that we are not completely sure where these Germanic tribes originated from exactly, with the kingdom of the Jepids eventually being located in the lands of the modern country of Romania from the 5th century, and their history to that point being uncertain. The establishment of the Jepid kingdom further south in the continent would have been caused by the Hunnic invasion into the continent westward from the Eurasian steppe. Whether the Huns pressed as far as to be in the lands of northern Poland is also debatable, but if Germanic tribes occupied these lands before the Hunnic invasion of Europe, then they may have vacated these lands to escape the Huns, and if they did, then this may have created the vacuum that allowed Slavic tribes to migrate into Polish lands after the Huns had disappeared from the European map. Slavs occupied a huge area of Eastern Europe stretching from the German borders in the west to the lands of Western Russia in the east and the branch of Slavs that settled Polish lands are called the West Slavs. Some West Slavs headed even further west into the lands of the modern countries of Czech Republic and Slovakia, but those who remained in Polish lands are referred to as the Lechites and are believed to be ancestral to the modern Poles. The Lechite tribe called the Masovians occupied the lands where the battle of this episode took place 
but we have to be careful to realise that these lands were the borderlands of the Masovian tribe, with their Baltic neighbours to the north. As we know, the Baltic tribes were indigenous to the area, and are referred to in the context of this period as the Old Prussians. A Baltic cousin of the Old Prussians to the east of the Old Prussians and the West Slavic Masovians were the Lithuanians. Poland To the west of the Masovians were another Lechite tribe called the Polans. Rulers of the Polans fought to establish an area of political influence where they were based and sought to expand their influence over their neighbours. The significant point came in the 10th century when Mieszko led the Polans. Mieszko had inherited his position of power through his patrilineal line from his father and he would have a significant influence on the success of the Polans, which included the subjugation of the Masovians as well as many other geographical Lechite neighbours. This was effectively the creation of Poland, named after the Polans and encompassing a number of Western Slavic tribes of the region. All of Mieszko's forefathers are described as semi-legendary and he is said to have descended from a man called Piast the Wheelwright who is mentioned in the Polish Chronicle which was written in the 12th century. Mieszko's dynasty is therefore called the Piast dynasty which would rule during the first few centuries of Poland's existence. Towards the end of Mieszko's tenure as the Duke of Poland his son, Bolesław, would be permitted to rule over Lesser Poland, which was an area in the southeast of the modern country of Poland. After Mieszko's death, Poland would be divided, but it would be Bolesław who was able to overcome his political opponents to reunite Poland in 995. Under Bolesław, Poland would grow in strength and stature. It had been somewhat subject to the Holy Roman Empire, but Bolesław would oversee Poland move out from underneath the Holy Roman Empire and fight to be a nation-state in charge of its own affairs in its own right. In the year 1000, Poland would be allowed to have its own Roman Catholic archdiocese at the city of Gniezno, and Bolesław would declare himself as the King of Poland, although it's not clear when he was crowned exactly. Bolesław's achievements in standing up to the Holy Roman Empire and establishing Poland as a Roman Catholic kingdom has led to him being referred to as Bolesław the Great, but he is more commonly remembered to history as Bolesław the Brave. Poland was ruled by more members of the Piast dynasty after the death of Bolesław the Brave in 1025. Poland would have to continue to defend its western borders against the attacks of the Holy Roman Empire, but it would also be subject to pressures from the east and the state of Kievan It would also not be helpful to the Polish kingdom that the rulers of the duchies within Poland were in conflict with each other quite frequently. However, the nation would survive in between these two huge nations of the Holy Roman Empire and Kievan it was during the 3rd century that the Teutonic Order came to Poland in order to defend its northern borders against the pagan Old Prussians and this led to the Teutons establishing a permanent area of influence within Polish lands. Very soon afterwards the Rus principalities collapsed to the Mongol invasion from the east which brought the Mongols to the Polish border. Mongols would raid Polish territories and cities, but ultimately Poland avoided total conquest. In the 14th century, an attempt to reunite the Kingdom of Poland under one rule was attempted, and after the death of the last Piast dynasty ruler of Poland, King Casimir III, the throne would pass to his nephew, King Louis of Hungary and Croatia. He would be succeeded as the ruler of Poland by his daughter, Jadwiga, and she would marry the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Jogaila Algidaitis, who would subsequently rule Poland as King Władysław Jagiełło. 
this would bring Poland and Lithuania together in a political union. Lithuania The lands of the modern country of Lithuania remained one of the untouched areas of Europe throughout classical antiquity and the early Middle Ages. There was a lack of trade networks and the area remained a pagan region of agricultural tribes. The ethnicity of the people of this area during the early Middle Ages was Baltic, an ethnicity shared by the tribes who occupied the area commonly recognised as Prussia and the area of the modern country of Latvia. Danish Vikings made raids on the coastal Baltic people's lands from the 9th century, but the first major invasion of Lithuania came from the east during the 11th century in the shape of the Kievan Rus. Lithuania was still a long way from becoming a nation-state, even at this late stage in history. Many other Baltic tribes existed around the lands of the Lithuanians, all of which remained pagan during this period. As Kievan Rus weakened, the Lithuanians took all that they had learned and were able to turn themselves into a respectable military force. This meant that the Lithuanians could push back against the Kievan Rus and prevent further territorial losses. At the beginning of the 13th century, the lands of Lithuania were separated into duchies, and due to the pressures being exerted on their lands by the nation-states surrounding them, the Lithuanians were demonstrating a willingness to cooperate with each other for the benefit of Lithuanians as a whole. And this is the first recognition of Lithuania modernising, and seemingly behaving like a United Nation state. It would be a man called Mindaugas who would really assert some authority over the Lithuanians and some of their ethnically Baltic neighbours. Mindaugas became the Grand Duke of Lithuania and was also crowned the King of Lithuania, recognised by the Pope thanks to Mindaugas converting to Christianity. This sequence of events did not necessarily provide Lithuania with the long-term stability one might expect, with this vast area still containing troublesome dukes and a large variety of ethnic subdivisions and the continued presence of paganism within the state. The assassination of Mindaugas was the first of a sequence of assassinations of the Lithuanian Grand Duke, further highlighting the disunity in this relatively new nation but the Lithuanians under Mindaugas were revered for preventing the westward expanding Mongols from reaching the Baltic Sea. Despite the chaos from the end of Mindaugas's reign, the following century, the 14th century, was a successful one for the Lithuanians. Grand Duke Gediminas established the modern Lithuanian capital city of Vilnius and was the progenitor of the Gediminid dynasty who ruled Lithuania during the 14th century and extended their territory all the way to the Black Sea in the south, which involved the capture of the city of Kiev after a defeat of the Golden Horde during the 1360s. The Golden Horde was a Turkic nation that descended from the westward expanded Mongols. Yogela Algidaitis became the Grand Duke of Lithuania in 1377. Jogaila was born a pagan but had a choice whether to marry into the Eastern Orthodox royal family of Muscovy or marry the 11-year-old Queen of Poland. An alignment to Muscovy would have incurred the wrath of the Teutonic Order. So Jogaila married Queen Jadwiga, of Poland and was proclaimed the King of Poland and therefore renamed Władysław Jagiełło. The Teutonic Order During the Third Crusade into the Holy Land at the end of the 12th century, a field hospital was established by German knights in the city of Acre. Pope Clement III approved this as a Christian monastic order and they would come to be known as the Teutonic Order, with the name Teutonic referencing their German origin. Before long, the order became militarised and popular. 
in that it was sought after for military support. As the situation started turning against the Crusader states in the Levant, the Teutonic Order migrated to Transylvania to offer support to the Hungarians in their struggles against the oppressive Kuman-Kipchak Confederation. The Teutons were a successful ally to the Hungarians, but their successes left the Hungarians feeling threatened by the Teutons' demands to rule the lands that they conquered, and so the Teutons were expelled from Hungary. Their next invitation came from the Polish princes who were struggling to control their pagan Baltic neighbours, the Old Prussians. Once again the Teutonic Knights were successful in Poland, but this time the Teutonic Order was permitted to establish a monastic nation-state on the northeast border of Poland. The Teutonic Knights' reputation was as high as ever, and similarly to the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller, their military capability was highly sought after. The Teutonic Knights would still be invited to participate in crusades to the Holy Land. However, now they could boast a land that they could call home and a further opportunity emerged when the Christian order of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword were on the brink of collapse. The Teutonic Order came to the rescue of the Sword Brothers and subsequently established another territory in Livonia. A large number of pagan Baltic natives who lived between the lands of the two Teutonic territories were Lithuanians. Considerable efforts were made by the Teutonic Order to convert the Lithuanians to Christianity through the remainder of the 13th century all the way into the 14th century. Eventually, Lithuania was Christianised in the latter half of the 14th century and this resulted in the Teutonic Order being left with no great pagan nations in Europe remaining to convert. King of Władysław II Jagiełło. Let us introduce some of the characters of this theatre and understand better the relationship between them and their nations. We previously mentioned King Władysław Jagiełło of Poland, but he was of Lithuanian origin and was only the King of Poland after marrying the Polish Queen. His Lithuanian name is Jogaila and he was the son of a Grand Duke Algirdas of Lithuania. On Algirdas's death, Jogaila would claim the position of Grand Duke of Lithuania, but his succession would be disputed by other family members, including his uncle Kestutis and his son Vitotas. Jogaila captured Kestutis and Vitotas in 1382 and Kestutis died in captivity, possibly murdered. The Teutonic Order would show an interest in forcibly converting the Lithuanians to Christianity, so both Jogaila and Vitotas attempted to negotiate with the Teutons to obtain an ally against each other. However, negotiations with the Teutons was highly demanding due to the Teutons' expectations and this would even push the two rival Lithuanian cousins closer together in the face of Teuton aggression. In Poland, there was a major concern with the succession of the Polish crown. In 1384, the 11-year-old Jadwiga was crowned the new king of Poland despite being a female. Having an infant monarch was detrimental for the Polish kingdom, who required strong leadership against the aggressions of the Hungarians to their south. So the Polish nobles presented to Jogaila, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, the opportunity to marry the Polish Queen, as long as he Christianised Lithuania and create a formal alliance between Lithuania and Poland. Jogaila accepted and would be crowned the new King Władysław II of Poland. Vitotas. As mentioned earlier, Vitotas was the son of Kestutis, who himself was the brother of a Grand Duke of Lithuania called Algirdas. Algirdas and Kestutis had differences with each other regarding the rulership of Lithuania. But after their deaths, the struggles continued between their sons, 
Yogaila and Vitotas. When Yogaila was presented with the opportunity to marry the Polish queen Jadwiga and become the new king of Poland, ruling as Władysław II, Vitotas's popularity in Lithuania increased. Vitotas attempted to involve the Teutonic Order in order to gain support to seize political control in Lithuania from the new Polish king Władysław. So Władysław would come to an arrangement whereby Vitotas would be allowed to act as regent in Lithuania and this enabled Vitotas to mould the political landscape in Lithuania to suit his own intentions. Any Lithuanian nobles who did not support him would be banished. Vitotas would become involved in the politics to his east of the Khanate of the Golden Horde when the deposed Khan Tochtamish was looking for help to regain power. Vitotas would see this as an opportunity to expand Lithuanian influence eastwards and would gather a crusader coalition to battle with the Golden Horde. Vitotas would have the support of the Kingdom of Poland and some Teutonic Knights, but when the two sides met at the Battle of the Vorskla River in 1399, the Golden Horde scored a crushing victory over the Lithuanians. Vitotas returned west, and the Lithuanian alliance with Poland would be further secured by a mutual and respectful acknowledgement of each other's influence. The Teutonic Order looked to support a political opponent of Vitotas, his cousin Svitrigaila, a man who had ambitions of becoming the Grand Duke of Lithuania after Vitotas's death. However, Svitrigaila was denied this honour by the agreement that on Vitotas's death, King Władysław of Poland would become the new Grand Duke of Lithuania. So this is what pushed Shvitrigaila into the arms of the Teutonic Order. Grandmaster Ulrich von Jüngingen. Ulrich was a descendant of the noble family of Jüngingen, which was a settlement near the centre of the vast Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe. Very little is known about Ulrich's young life as he was not expected to become the head of the House of Jüngingen due to there being too many family members ahead of him in the succession line. The same situation existed for one of Ulrich's older brothers, Conrad. The two brothers decided to migrate northeast to the lands of the Teutonic Order and become Teutonic Knights after taking the monastic vow. Conrad would become the Order's Grand Master in 1393 and he would support his brother Ulrich, who himself was a Comteur, another name for a knight commander. This period of time was a healthy period for the Teutonic Order who took control of the Baltic Sea island of Gotland and consolidated the lands between Prussia and Livonia which gave both Poland and Lithuania no direct access to the Baltic Sea. Now the Baltic coastline was completely controlled by the Holy Roman Empire and the Teutonic Order. The Teutonic Order had a direct interest in debilitating Lithuania and this would also potentially incur the wrath of Poland. The formation of the Kalmar Union in 1397, a Scandinavian political union of the kingdoms of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, also threatened the interest of the Teutonic Order. So the order had to be careful not to destroy its diplomatic position with Poland and be surrounded by aggressors. On the death of Conrad, his brother Ulrich would become the new Grand Master of the Teutonic Order. Where Conrad was a respected diplomat, Ulrich was much more militarily minded. Ulrich did not fear upsetting the Polish and tried to develop a diplomatic understanding with Sigismund, the King of Hungary and Croatia, that would benefit in the event of a war with the Polish. This was a clear sign the Teutons were on a collision course with Poland. Prelude to the Battle 
The land which separated the Teutonic Order's lands in Prussia from their lands in Livonia was called Samogitia. The Samogitians were a cultural division of the Lithuanians who occupied coastal territories, but Grand Duke Vitautas in Lithuania ceded Samogitian territory to the Teutonic Order so that he may recruit Teutonic knights to help him in Lithuania's battles with the Golden Horde. The Samogitians rose up against Teutonic rule and spent the earliest years of the 15th century in fierce rebellion. Initially, Vitautas refused to help the Samogitians, staying true to his agreement, but in 1409 he decided to stand up for them. The Teutonic Knights under Grand Master Ulrich von Jüngingen prepared to go to war with the Lithuanians, understanding that the political landscape meant that a war with Lithuania would mean a war against Poland. The rest of 1409 witnessed some border skirmishes in Polish territories and a lot of international diplomacy. Grandmaster Ulrich von Jüngingen paid vast amounts of money to the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Hungary and Croatia for their political support against the Poland-Lithuania coalition, even considering ways to coerce Lithuania away from Poland's influence. The bond between Poland and Lithuania was too strong to break, however. So Grandmaster Ulrich kept an eye on each of his borders with Poland and with Lithuania, preparing for invasion from either or simultaneously from both. Unbeknown to Grandmaster Ulrich, King Władysław and Grand Duke Vitautas were preparing a huge combined army in Poland to mount a shock invasion of the lands of the Teutonic Order. Polish military activity near the border city of Bydgoszcz raised the concern of the Teutons, but this was just a distraction created by the Polish to distract the Teutons from the huge invasion coming from a 100 miles further east along the Polish border. The next few days was a game of cat and mouse as the Teuton army had to suddenly react to this unexpected invasion and the two armies tracked each other in the Teutonic Order territory while moving eastwards. The Poland-Lithuania coalition reportedly ravaged the village of Gilgenburg and Grand Master Ulrich pledged to crush the coalition army. Estimates for the size of the combined Polish-Lithuanian army are as high as 39,000. The Polish contingent made up the majority of the army and was led by King Władysław of Poland. Stationed on the right flank were the Lithuanian forces led by the Grand Duke Vitautas and his flank would be supported by Tatar mercenaries. The Tatars is a collective name for Turkic peoples who originated from the vast steppe lands of Eurasia that in large part had come under the influence of westward expanding Mongols since the 13th century. The Teutonic army is thought to have been smaller, even though they were defending home territory. They were supported by various Germanic mercenaries. The Teutonic army arrived at the battleground close to the village of Grunwald, on the evening of the 14th of July. They camped overnight until the Poland-Lithuania army arrived very early on the following morning. The Teutons would goad the Polish-Lithuanians into starting the battle, but the Polish-Lithuanians held back, waiting until the time was right for them. The Battle of Grunwald Grand Duke Vitautas on the Poland-Lithuania right flank ordered the Tartan mercenary cavalry to advance against the Teutonic left flank. The Tartar cavalry was supported by the Lithuanian cavalry. The Teutonic cavalry struggled to contain the Lithuanian assault but the second line of the Teutonic cavalry had more impact and was able to chase the Tartars and the Lithuanians away. Those Teutonic cavalry who decided to break ranks and pursue the fleeing Lithuanians towards the woods were picked off by the Polish reserves. It was at this point that the Grand Master Ulrich von Jüngingen 
ordered the advance of the Teutonic Order army and a massive battle broke out in the centre of the battlefield. As the battle progressed, it became clear to the Polish king, Władysław Jagiełło, that the Teutonic Order were getting the upper hand. So King Władysław ordered his reserve cavalry and another line of infantry to advance forward and support the troops losing ground in the centre. This seemed to stop the Teutonic Order from dominating the battle, but it did mean that King Władysław had used up most of his reserves. If nothing else, this did buy Poland-Lithuania a bit of time, and this meant that Vitortus could reassemble his right-hand flank which had dispersed earlier in the battle, so the remains of the Lithuanian and Tartar mercenary cavalry were ready to do battle again. King Władysław was now feeling much more confident and led a charge which would target the committed Teutonic Order left flank which had advanced forward a long way due to the disruption caused to the Lithuanians throughout the battle. It was now the afternoon and the left flank of the Teutonic Order was beginning to get overwhelmed and worse still they had been drawn so far forward that they were now in serious danger of becoming isolated. When the Polish army recognised this, they attacked the middle of the Teutonic Order army and broke their ranks into two. At this time the Teutonic Order had lost control of the battle. The infantry began to overwhelm the Teutonic knights and many of them were slaughtered. Worse still, Grandmaster Ulrich von Jüngingen himself was unable to escape. He was killed amidst all of the chaos. It is even reported that those knights who attempted to surrender were also killed on the battlefield. The competition was over for the Teutonic Order and the only option was to flee. Aftermath. Only around 1,500 troops are said to have escaped the battlefield. The scale of this battle meant that the Teutonic Order army had been absolutely crushed which was a disaster for the state that was based on its military order. Now the only means by which the order would have to defend its territory was to depend on foreign support, which came at a price. Władysław and Vitortus decided to attack the capital of the Teutonic Order, represented by the castle at Marienburg, which is the modern Polish town of Malburg. Poland-Lithuania laid siege to the castle but failed to take control of it, meaning that the war between Poland-Lithuania and the Teutonic Order had to be concluded by a peace treaty in the following year called the Peace of Torn. Lands that had previously been captured by the Teutonic Order had to now be surrendered back to Poland-Lithuania. Although some state that the failure of Poland-Lithuania to capture Marienburg Castle was their failure to complete the job, there is no doubt that the Teutonic Order had been severely weakened and were no longer the threat that they represented before the war. While the Teutonic Order weakened, Poland and Lithuania grew stronger, and in large part thanks to their union with each other which was revised frequently. The Grand Duke of Lithuania, Vitortas, is now referred to as Vitortas the Great, an important historical figure of Lithuanian history. Lithuania was often denied the right to call their senior statesman the King of Lithuania, even though the Grand Duke of Lithuania was effectively the monarch of the realm anyway. King Władysław Jagiełło was happy for Vitortas to be ceremonially crowned the King of Lithuania, but before the ceremony could take place, Vitortas died in 430 at around 80 years old. King Władysław Jagiełło had a traditional Polish enemy to his south in King Sigismund of Hungary and Croatia. Sigismund had previously undertaken diplomatic negotiations with the Teutonic Order, but after their defeat, he was much more accommodating about coming to terms with the Polish king. King Władysław Jagiełło 
was able to impose Christianity on most of the Lithuanians who had not already been converted, but he was never able to make Lithuania a part of Poland. King Władysław Jagiełło died just four years after the tortoise in the year 1434, certainly in his 70s if not older. The Teutonic Order lost its continuous border with the Baltic Sea, separating it back into two areas centred on Prussia and Livonia. Later in the 15th century, the Teutonic territory in Prussia was considerably reduced by a further peace treaty with Poland. Further conflict during the early 16th century led to the Teutonic Grand Master being demoted to the position of Duke of Prussia, ruling the territory under the crown of Poland. Livonia collapsed under threat from Russians to their east and the territory was disbanded by the Treaty of Vilnius in 1561. Despite losing all of their land holdings, the Teutonic Order still continues to exist as a religious order in the Austrian city of Vienna to this day. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Battle of Grunwald. And um, very interesting indeed being one of the biggest medieval battles. This is one of the uh, one of the ones that historians will say is one of the biggest uh, battles in terms of the amounts of 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 soldiers there, the amount of individuals that actually were involved in this battle, and uh, and it's nice to bring these battles to the forefront a little bit, especially on a very uh, you know a, a podcast produced in in England where we, you know, often think about uh, Cressy and Agincourt as, you know, the stereotypical medieval battles, of course, um, as important as they were, um, Grunwald was equally important. So um, it was great to discuss this week's episode. The Ancient World Cup. Well, before we go ahead, I would just like to really thank everyone who played their part in the ancient world cup thanks to you guys you've made this event happen and you've made it successful and uh, there's it's generated an awful lot of interest and i think you can give yourselves a big pat on the back for that it's been a big journey hasn't it from the very beginnings we've done such a lot um it's almost it's almost become a beast of its own, hasn't it? This little feature, and and some of you may even be listening to this episode in anticipation of this section of the podcast, especially this week. Now, um, the Ancient World Cup, um, we originally started with sixty-four teams, and um, this week, just gone was the grand final. So we boiled it down to just two teams: the ancient Egyptians and the Romans. You was all kind enough to. Uh, contribute something to last week's episode where we previewed the final and uh, I think it did excite some interest in the final um, on the voting platforms uh, the Facebook page the unofficial Facebook fan group the Twitter uh, page and the Instagram page we had 120 votes so the voting for the final was by far and away in excess of anything that we've had previously. So I really would like to sincerely thank you for your interest and engagement in this uh, in this little tournament and especially in this final match. So the ancient Egyptians versus the Romans. Um, let me let me take a look at each of the platforms. Now I can say that on the four platforms that we use for voting, um, the winner on each platform 
was the same and and it was quite close on one or two of them a uh, matter of a couple of votes um, but out of the 120 votes 71 were cast in one direction and 49 were cast in the other direction it means that um, the winner had 59% of the vote so it's quite a convincing victory and uh, I can announce now that the winners between the ancient Egyptians and the Romans with 59% of the 120 votes and the ancient World Cup champions are the Romans. So thank you very much and I hope you enjoyed that tournament. The Romans are the winners. Unfortunately, the ancient Egyptians came so far but didn't get the job done in the end. So congratulations to the Romans and well done to everyone who voted for them and kept their fingers crossed in the hope that they would win the tournament. Uh, so that's it for the Ancient World Cup. It is no more. It is done. It is finished. So uh, no more Ancient World Cup. We may return with another competition uh, in the future, uh, but um, for now we're just going to take a little bit of a break from it and... Uh, put our thinking caps on, I think, before we engage again in such a tournament. So um, any ideas that you have for, for tournaments as well, such as this, then please do write in. I'm always interested to hear from you, the hot worlders, the listening public of the podcast. Uh, but thank you very much for everyone uh, for their support of this ancient World Cup. Listener messages and reviews. Malreek has written in and said, Hey Chris, love the podcast, just started out and I'm about to listen to the hunter-gatherer episode. Seeing that the podcast is still going strong into the medieval period gets me even more excited and I can't wait to catch up. Amazing job overall. Greetings from the Netherlands. Uh, thank you very much, Malreek. Uh, Phil Huriska has written in, uh, Chris, I would like to vote for the Romans in the ancient World Cup. For me, the impact of the Roman Empire is much more manifest and accessible than that of ancient Egypt. The volume of writing on the Romans is immense and reflects much more culturally relevant issues, themes that can be gleaned from the opaque hieroglyphics of Egypt. For example, I can readily connect in this modern era to the Roman culture and relate to their morals and ethics. You can argue that the Egyptian dynasties lasted longer than the Rome, uh, than from Rome to the present, but you have to rely on experts such as yourself to interpret. And to one degree or another, it involves speculation, i.e. educated guesses. And even so, besides being interesting, it is not all that relevant to me. So that's my two cents. Thanks for listening, Phil. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, very interesting, but you'll be glad to know that the Romans won. Mohammed Atif has written in and put, Dear Mr. Chris, I'm writing to thank you massively for the amazing content you have blessed me personally with. A million thanks. Best and kindest regards, Mohammed Hassan. And uh, finally, uh, from the emails, we've got uh, John Boltheis. Who's put, a, who's put, Chris, I'm a fairly recent fan, identified by the fact that I am only on Volume 1, Episode 12. However, I've dipped in and out over the broad spectrum of your episodes on subjects that interested me as relative to other podcasts I've been listening to for the past few years. That includes The Ancient World, which I've enjoyed through its complete series, going back to some episodes to reinforce information from yet other uh, from yet other podcasts such as the Hellenistic Age, the History of Rome, the History of Egypt and the like. Recently I decided to see how your series began and found this very interesting series I am now listening to with the idea of following it to the end. I am loving it so far. I think you are doing a great job of explaining your way through this seemingly multifaceted subject. Uh, though I am familiar with much that I have heard so far, your work has greatly assisted me in organising the subject in my mind, providing perspective uh, which helps the bits and pieces stay in place, ready for the next episode. Thanks again, and I really am looking forward to this long journey you have provided. That's from John Baltheis uh, from Nicasio in California. Thank you very much. From Instagram, we've got nizzlesizzle9038. Hi, it's Nathan. I love your show. 
Thank you very much, Nathan. Uh, Rajesh uh, Kolekel has written in and put, Hello, Chris came across your podcast on Spotify. Have reached episode 12 and am absolutely hooked. Splendidly done. Uh, Maria S. Farber has written in and said, just wanted to tell you how much I am enjoying your podcast. I'm on season one, episode 19. Wow, so much to learn. Thank you for what you are creating, for your dedication. Really, really super. Sending love from New Jersey. Thank you very much, Maria. Eduardo Galvan II has put, Howdy, found your podcast while looking for something to listen to now that I'm back in the office and I've become a big fan. Just completed... Uh, volume one and I'm looking forward to the ancient world volume it's going to take some time to catch up I'm here for the wild ride thanks for putting this together uh, a very good friend of the uh, podcast and uh, hot welder and history of the world podcast Illuminati member Shane Smith has written in and said uh, Mr Chris I hope this finds you well and good so I just listened to your Joan of Arc episode and I don't mean to be uh, I don't mean to criticise, but I feel you did her an injustice. I understand the need to give a backstory on events, but in doing so, you kind of rushed her story. The biggest thing I think that you missed was how bad the King of France did her dirty by not standing up for her. He had the opportunity, uh, for my understanding, to rescue her, but because he was afraid of the power that she was gaining and the prestige, he kind of threw her to the wolves. I understand that they actually burned her twice. The first time they burned her, they stopped, had her sign the confession and agreement not to wear men's clothes or do all that stuff again. And then when she violated it, they burned her the second time. I don't know, just my thoughts. I really do like the thought of you doing a Warriors World Cup. Uh, anyways, I'll talk to you soon or at least listen to you soon. Thank you very much, Shane. Um, yeah, very interesting um, uh, email and thank you for your... Um, opinions about the uh, the about the Joan of Arc episode, and uh, yes, um, well, my understanding is that she was um, burned at the stake, and then her remains were reburned to prevent them being taken as religious relics. But um, I might uh, I might not have all the facts to hand, so uh, you might have something there, Shane. Um, Candace Marie has put, uh, I find your podcast absolutely well thought of. I'm currently on the volume two, episode 12. I find your podcast very clear and in very, and well informative. I love how you talk about the ancient world and how we migrated. You made me want to look into my heritage and find out where my families have migrated. Keep up the amazing work. I would love to hear about the Great Wall of China. I've been so interested in it. I saw that there had been some recent evidence that the wall was there before the Chinese dynasty. Have you seen any information about this? Um, well, Candace, I, I I wouldn't be in any way surprised to know that the the Great Wall of China was constructed many years before we might even believe. I know certainly um, through the Warring States period that there were certainly wall constructions in China, but as for before that, I'm not completely sure uh where i can find evidence of that uh, of that kind of thing maybe um with a little bit of dedication and hard work i could find it um however um it wouldn't surprise me it's quite a natural thing for humans to build walls either to protect themselves or to uh prevent others uh from advancing so uh, i wouldn't be in the slightest bit surprised if uh, there's discoveries of uh of walls in China that predate the ones that we already know about. Uh, anyway, thank you, Candace. Uh, Stein and Lilia has written in and put, Hello, Chris, I just discovered your podcast rather late to the party, I know. I just wanted to send you a line to let you know that I enjoy it very much and that you have at least one fan in Iceland. Best regards, Steinen. Uh Thank you very much, Steinen. Uh, I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. I probably haven't known me. Um, but I apologise if I haven't, but uh, I do thank you uh, for sending your message in. couple of reviews we've got. Disappointed 1976 exclamation mark from the United States of America has put, 
Brilliant. Chris is a profound lover of history and that passion shows in every episode. His podcasts are thoroughly researched and lovingly presented and he's an engaging, likeable and unassuming host. I'm 30 episodes in and I'm not stopping until I reach the end. And uh, then Desert Dog Senior from the United States of America again has put, finally, finally, there's a history podcaster with a work ethic to match my addiction for history podcasts. This guy turns them out like a machine. The quality isn't as polished as others I like, but some of those take half a year or more to come out with new episodes. To me, that extra production value is not worth it. Quantity over quality for sure on history podcasts, especially because this is a, still a higher tier piece of informative entertainment. Well, thank you very much for all of you and all of your kind words. Remember, if you would like to support the podcast, you absolutely can. You just sign up to become a member of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, make a monthly contribution uh, by going to the History of the World podcast.com website, clicking on the Patreon link, and uh, signing up to make a monthly contribution. Those of you who are waiting for rewards, they are on their way, don't fear. Uh, there was quite a drama with uh, the international postage uh, system in our country, in the UK, uh, but um, I've looked to overcome that problem by investing in some uh, equipment that's going to help me to put the customs uh, labels onto my mail without the rigmarole of having to queue up at the post office and wait ages for them to do what they have to do to do it. So I'm going to be um, looking into doing that uh, hopefully this week so some of them will be dispatched and those that haven't been uh, will be ordered and dispatched. So uh, still every intention of sending them out. So don't worry. But um, if you too want to sign up and make a monthly contribution, you can also qualify for intangible rewards, such as uh, commissioning History of the World podcast episodes on the subject of your choice. And after our European summary, which is coming in a couple of weeks, um, we will be uh, doing some special episodes for those people who have earned the right to commission them. There's about six in the pipeline. So quite excited about that. I've been collecting a bit of uh, resource material, which uh, thanks to you guys I've been able to buy with these and uh, hopefully be able to create some episodes that are uh, especially for those who deserve them the most. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Next week, it will be the Battle of Kutna Hora, which is uh, a Czech Republic battle, uh, if we want to call it by its modern name. And uh, it involves the Holy Roman Empire and uh, the Hussites, who were a um, radical religious movement, who uh, uh, were followers of a man who opposed the church and the way that they uh, conducted their affairs, very uh, financially motivated Roman Catholic church in the medieval age. So we'll be finding out a bit more about that. It's the seeds of the beginnings of Protestantism. So um, it's a very interesting episode. Anyway, that's next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.